If you've been around fishing for a long time, Mike Connors has probably influenced you one way or the other. He was a longtime writer for Florida Sportsman, Saltwater Magazine, Fly Fishing Magazines, you name it, Mike wrote it. Today, Mike holds the title as an Indian River Keeper and keeps a close eye on one of the most important fisheries in the state, in the Stewart area. Mike's passion for the water, Mike's passion for fly fishing, and Mike's passion to make sure that all of us enjoy it made this conversation enjoyable and one I'll always remember. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Clear the airways. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy Podcast. The older I get. Well, you know. I made up a phrase. I don't know if I made it up or if I stole it from somebody, but it, the old saying, or my old saying, if you fish long enough, you learn to hate everybody. Yep, I heard you say that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> to be such a cynic, but, you know, it kind of holds true. I'm with Mike Connors today um, down here in Jensen Beach, Florida. Uh, just took a drive down from Fort Lauderdale and I felt like I was leaving a third world country and coming back to America driving into uh, driving into the Stewart area. Mike, good to have you on the podcast. Um, appreciate your time. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so I roll up into Mike's front yard. He's got the skiff in the garage, pickup truck behind the garage, and then a beautiful red truck, Indian River Waterkeeper. Indian River Keeper, actually. Indian River Keeper. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Now that's a uh, your affiliates with like uh, the Miami Waterkeeper and that type of thing, or no? Yeah, we're we're uh, there are now sixteen waterkeepers in Florida. It's Florida, it's Waterkeepers Florida, but we're all members of the Global Waterkeeper Alliance. There's 385 waterkeepers in the world. Mm-hmm. Even Amazon has a waterkeeper to give you an idea. So there's waterkeepers all over the world, and the network's growing. Um, again, Florida has 16. I think soon to have 17. And uh, this chapter, if I can call it a chapter, in the Riverkeeper has been around since 2002. Okay. I'm the fourth waterkeeper. Executive director, actually. Okay. Well, you had the second waterkeeper that we've had on the Real Guy podcast. Okay, yeah. You I, had... Uh, I had Rachel Silverstein. Yeah, I know Rachel well. Yeah. Yeah. And um, one of the small wins that we got in Fort Lauderdale um, after the huge sewage spill is... Um, we got the city to actually let Rachel test 10 different sites around the city of Fort Lauderdale for um, bacteria levels. Yeah, fecal, right? Yeah, yeah. fecal levels. And enteric uh, bacteria, yeah. Yeah, and that was that was a bit of a, it kind of pushed the local government to get it done. But that was one of the, one of the things that they actually did. So um, it's been pretty good just because you can kind of get, you can kind of tell what's going on. Um, unfortunately, since she's been doing the test once a week, consistently, we're failing badly in 40 to 60% of the areas. And um, without the test, people would just not even have a reference. They and, have no idea. I know. It's they, true. They don't. They don't. Now, Mike, you've been around for a long time. Um, where, did, uh, where did you start your whole infatuation with the water? Yeah, well, I'm turning 65 in November. Yeah, we moved to Miami, my whole family, my brother and I, and mom and dad, we moved down in 62. My dad got a really good job at a new high school, Coral Park High School, West Miami, Western uh, Westchester area of Miami, and he uh, got the job, dream job, and here we go. And, and we moved to 102nd Avenue right off the Tammy Trail, you know, US 41, mm-hmm. and it took me about a week and a half to realize we were about three miles from the Everglades. I mean, Chrome Avenue was seven miles west of my house, and that today, you know, development's encroached. That's now part of suburbia. Right. But there it was, all these sawgrass canals and bass, and 
we were that was a playground it was wonderful you're we so lucky my dad went out and got two john boats right away a couple old kickers and our adventures were going out the tamimi trail the l67 canal or the l28 and bass fishing back in the days and i remember vividly the first time we caught a lot of bass that was in the times when the rapala which is really called a rapala i always called it a rapala I but the rapala some of the first prototypes came out my dad got one from a friend there were guys that actually rented them to people because they were so deadly. Huh. And we'd go up down the canal on our little kicker boat. Didn't even cast them. You just put them back and trolled them. You know, right. rod right, rod left, and the bat, catch 50, 75 bass a day on rapalas. <laughs> um, anyway, so that that was where I grew up. And it, uh, we were into freshwater a lot, but, you know, in time, like all of us, we all spread our wings and go adventure the next mile, next mile. We discovered Chokoloski, discovered Everglades City, discovered Naples. Um and uh, it took me a little while longer, but I, I discovered Biscayne Bay when I was about 10 and did some regular bottom fishing with friends that had uh, had a houseboat in Matheson Hammock. We'd go out and fish at night in the finger channels to catch really nice mutton snapper, big fish. His dad was a shark fanatic. We caught sharks. They caught sharks. I really didn't care about sharks. But what I did find out about was bonefish flats. And by the time I was about 11... I think I was. I got in high school in '69. I went to Christopher Columbus High School, a Catholic boys' school, mm-hmm. and best friend of the football team lived two blocks from Matheson Hammock. And I imagine watching American sportsmen one afternoon about you know tailing bonefish and Kirk Downey and all that. He goes, "What do you want to do that?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, Tom." He goes, "I bonefish." Right. And I couldn't believe it. So he went down. My dad dropped me off at his house, Tom Blue's house, and we. I brought a ten speed. We took our 10 speeds down this road called Chapman Field, which is Shoal Point, real near Mass and Hammock. And Tom and his friend, uh, Tom Blue and his friend uh, Rick, they had a mangrove tree. It was a black mangrove, you know, pretty good sized tree with little slats tapped in the tree for steps. Hmm. And Tom, we got there. I'm like, what's, what's he climbing a tree for? And he climbed this tree, looked left, looked right, and said, the tailors are right. So he came down, and we walked out into the water. And Jeff, it was day. It was a daybreak. It's probably a June morning. No wind. He looked to the right, and you see squadrons of bonefish, as far as you can see, tails out, rising tide. And he used the tree as his little fish tower, huh? His fish tower, and then he that, he'd always climb it to find out which were most of the fish were left or right. <laughs> and we first day out, we were we were using we were using nickel lures. Who remembers nickel lures? Quarter ounce, white or yellow, Popeye, Popeye jig. And I bet you know what those are. I remember the Popeye With jig. With the feathers in the back, a couple of hackles. And when, uh, there was some other ones, Mr. Whiffle back then. Mr. Whiffle, yeah. And then that's even, that's long, really back then was Millie's jigs came along, but the nickel lures are what they sold in the tackle shops and white or yellow, you know. Later on, we used brown, you know, to be stealthy with the right color, right? It didn't matter. But we went out, and I was a, I was a, a beginner, and so I, was, I could cast, I could fish. I never caught a redfish in the flats before, never tried bone fishing. We went out, and we cast, and for the first couple hours, you would land that quarter-ounce lure, which is really too heavy, amongst the tailors, and they'd blow up, and then they'd settle down. And then they keep coming, you ca- and they'd eat the jig. Right. I caught three bonefish my first try out with a, you know, my little my Mitchell 300 freshwater spinning reel and nick lures, and I caught three bonefish, and I've, I've never been the same since. Um, that's what I loved, and it's all I did. That's all I did. So bone fishing, we did that. Then we gravitated toward going to Flamingo, Everglades National Park, fishing for reds on the flats, snook, baby tarpon. Um, I mean, South Florida, y- you could flip a coin and say, where are we going tomorrow? Because there were so many great places to go from West Miami. And I still bass fish. Don't get me wrong. I did that. And I later on, I, when I got my driver's license, there's, you know, 
all bets are off. I could go anywhere I wanted. And I finally got a little skiff and a trailer boat. And I fished Flamingo back in the late 70s when there was very few guides and lots of redfish. And way previous to the real problem that happened down there with the grass die-off. So the fishing at Flamingo, it was nothing to go out there. And I had an old bass tracker, one of the first aluminum bass trackers. I was maybe 28 years old. And I pulled from the bow like they used to. I never built a pulling platform for it. But it was nothing to go out there and hook your redfish. And while you're fighting your fish, you see in the next tailor you're going to go to. So you already had your next four shots lined up. There were so many redfish so many snook in that place. Anyway, through high school years, and I, I stayed in Miami, and uh, I, uh, you know, went to work for Delta Airlines, uh, got a, a good job at 20 years old, with really great benefits, and too good to pay for what I did, and so I stayed there for 18 years. Okay. But, dur but during that time, I, uh, I started guiding on the side, a little bit part-time, a little uh -huh. part-time. Not Someone asked me, why don't you guide? I got four or five friends I could send you every month, and I started guiding. I guided on, a little bit on foot, too. I, I guided uh, out on the trail. That was, I was going to ask you, um, I mean, I talked to Steve Kantner, yeah. um, and he told me that you were the original land captain. Well, yeah, not really. I, I say he was the original land captain because he made an art out of it. He made it, he, he um, I don't know. Um, I took people out, friends, but I, uh, you know, I discovered that fishery through magazine articles. You know, Chico Fernandez, I think, wrote an article one time in Florida Sports about the trail, and he talked about the history of it. And all that romanticism about fishing was part of it for me, and I was just starting to fly fish. I think I started saltwater fly fishing. I started fly fishing when I was 11 for bass poppers, you know, typical bass and brim. But saltwater, I, I really got started, I think, when I was 18 and using glass rods, and I started fly tying right away, too, because I was part of fly fishing. You know, fly fish, tie flies. I mean, that brings it full circle. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's like you, 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 you do how to, you probably do a lot of it yourself in your fishing. You're doing things with your own hands, making your rigs, whatever it is. But with the trail, it was a place I could drive and be out there in one hour and, and learning to pick my days the right time of year. And I don't think there was a fishery anywhere in South Florida that was so incredible. When it was on, it was just stupid, amazing. Right. And the people, you think about all these people driving the road behind you have no idea. Right. We now this, this, this is, all right, give me the, the dates again when you're doing this on Tamiami Trail, because you're working for American. No, no, no I or, worked for Delta, Delta after I got out of high school. So I started working for Delta Airlines in 77. I was fishing the trail when I was in high school. Okay. Okay, well, I was split my time between bone fishing on the bay and all waiting, by the way. I only got my first boat, aluminum boat on Biscayne Bay when I was about, I would say about 1973, 74. And the only boat out there was the Yellow Grasshopper. You know who was in that boat? Bill Curtis. And there was nobody else fishing those flats hardly at all. We mm -hmm. had it to ourselves. Right. But don't, see what I'm saying? There's so many things we options we had. Uh, but with the trail, I would go out, and, and it was just such a great fishery because you're, you know, you're roadside for starters. There's no cost involved. It's cheap gas. It's all you need. Mm -hmm. And go out there, and when the water was coming out of the prairies on north winds in the spring, um, it was just a smorgasbord. I mean, just all the snook and tarpon were lined up on all the banks wherever an outlet came out and the gambusia meadows that come out. You go along the roadside, look for birds and pull over, get out of the car and just hear the explosions. And you just, whatever you threw, they ate. It was right. amazing. It was amazing. It see, really was. It still can be good, but I haven't really, I, I don't do that much anymore, but. See, I used to do a ton of it 
I used to do a ton of it when I was in high school. That was in the 80s. You did the trail? Yeah, we did yeah. the trail. And you just take the take the uh, truck down the trail and put a little John boat in the back of the truck and then pull off where it didn't really seem to matter. There was water and, yeah. and you could pull off. You would do it. The last couple of times I tried that, it was probably 10 years ago, the <laughs> big trucks going back and forth took a lot of the fun out of well, it. Well, it's more traffic, more people, more trucks, more commerce. So, yeah, the trail now is just, I you know the last times I did that, I used to bring earplugs. Real good earplugs, not music, but just earplugs. Because I get so tired of the drone of trucks behind me. And you had to time your cast because I, I, I hooked two cars in my life out there, <laughs> and I had one on for about ten seconds, and it spooled me, my backing, everything. All I could do at the last minute was point my rod toward that semi and just. Boom. I wasn't gonna let go of the rod. I didn't have to, but I, boy, I tell you, that feel it was scary. I think should I let go of the rod or not? And I didn't. And it just went. <laughs> and I had no backing, no fly line. I had a backup rod, thank God. Um, but you'd have to watch your back cast, see where the cars are coming from. And the, the look on the pe- people's faces is always great. You look at people through the windshield, and you've got the, the line over the car, and their eyes get gigantic, like, what's he doing? <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> right. But that was a place you could go, and you can catch 50 snook in three, four hours, catch 10 baby tarpon, and you can catch snook up to 20 pounds out there. But the, the numbers were, were tremendous. Um, just something really cool about it, you know, and if you know the history of it, you know that guys like Homer Road, Chico, um, Lefty, Flip Pallet, Al Fluger, they all went out there and cut their teeth on fly fishing there. Right. So it's a lot of history. Uh, you know, they, the ghosts walk the guardrails, I say, you know. I don't know if that's why I went out there when I was a kid, because I got my first fly rod, you know, I was around 15 or so. And... Um, what happened with me is I went out to the Tamiami Trail and caught like, I don't know, six tarpon, you know, small yeah. guys, but yeah. six tarpon the first day. Then I went to our house over in Treasure Key and caught bonefish. And then I went back to Fort Lauderdale and caught a couple of tarpon. And I was like, oh, yeah, fly fishing's easy and never picked it up again until I was like 35. Oh, really? You let it go? You just well, put I it just, down? I just was like, well, yeah. there's nothing to this because I was yeah. so spoiled in my sure. first few trips that I sure. had no clue how good it was. Yeah, the, the fishery out there, you have to figure it out. And it got to the point where, you know, it, it would make you design flies. And I, I put a, a couple streamers user used to be kind of big. But when I, when those, those I call them, they're not hatches. They're when the minnows came out of the prairies and those fish got super, super selective. And as you know, as an angler, there's times when you have to have what they want. Um, we, we take some of the old muddler minnows or whatever you're using, old seducers. I used to use seducers out there, but they didn't work so well. They worked great when there's not, you didn't have the minnow feed going on. You would take a Dauberg diver, a big deer hair diver, boom, 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 you know, make them, make them look up and find your lure, but when they were hit your fly, but when they were eating those minnows, you had to have that. You had to have the right length, and we were using number four. I made I made a fly uh, out of uh, all crafter. It looked just like one of those gambouge minnows. I called it the Glades minnow. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve Cantor came to call, start calling it the Trail minnow. I said, Shh, "Don't call it the Trail minnow. You're telling people where to go." You know. <laughs> so I called the Glade. And anyway, Umqua picked it up. It's now an Umqua trademark pattern. I get a little ch- royalty check in the mail from Umqua every three months for four patterns they picked up of mine. Well, it's enough to buy a few bottles of wine a month, you know. What a great fa- what a great factoid for the Real Guy podcast. Yeah, I had no clue. The Glades minnow, man. Yeah. I've but I don't know how many Glades minnow I've bought. Now I tried to I've tried <laughs> to tie my own flies. Yeah, I'm not very good at it, and I don't enjoy it, so I gave up on it. If you don't enjoy it, you ain't gonna do it. <laughs> right. So I gave up on it. But what I did do is I made friends with a lot of people that enjoy it. Right. And then they'll give me the flies. Perfect. Because yeah. they say, "Hey, try this. You know, see if it works." Sure. Or, sure. You know, sure. And and that, that's kind of my extent with the uh, with the flies. But you know, as I get older, 
um, especially in the last six or seven years, I'm doing more fly fishing for myself. And especially last year with COVID, yeah. I didn't let the fly rod down for almost a year. You know, I didn't have my clients coming in. I right, wasn't, you weren't chartering. I, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and you want to you wanna stay in touch with your uh, fishery. Yeah. So I would just go out there with the fly and then picked up a lot of momentum in the last 24 months with the fly. Yeah, good. And um, Well, the stuff's never been better. The, the, the tackle's never been better. The rods are tremendous. I mean, the stuff's so good. When I started fly fishing, you know, the glass rods, they were soft. They were hard on your arm. They were, you know, the reels were fine. The reels have always been good. They've always been machine reels available, but the rods have, in the last 15 years even, have gotten lighter and stronger and more responsive, and they're, they're tremendous. And there's a lot of money involved. People say, why does this cost so much? But if you understand fly fishing, uh, you know, especially the reels, the reels are so good and so well made. You're going to pass those down to two generations. They're, they're going to outlive you, outlive your kids. That's how good, well they're made. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, hey, um, I have a few breakwater Reddington breakwaters mm-hmm. that I've had for 20 years, and they're the first ones I pick up. I got to tell yeah, you, yeah. you know, they're they're great reels. And um, but anyway, the fly fishing thing and the Tamiami Trail thing, you mentioned the seagrass kill off way back when. Well, that happened in Florida Bay. Uh, people, Hank Brown was one of the first well-known guys out of Alamogordo that noticed it, made made it public. Um, 1979, 80, 82, right in there, mm-hmm. um, you started seeing situations where the grass was yellowing, getting real thin. The turtle grass was coming up in, in, in just in, in hand, handful everywhere you go floating. And the water, not too long after that, the water, late by the ladies, the water turned super pea green. And there was two schools of thought by the science, the science uh, you know, um, community. One was that the grass was being killed uh, by fertilizers, by coming off the redlands. And the other school of thought was the reason the grass was starting to die in the bay was the bay was becoming too salty because over time in the EAA north of, of South Dade, the water, the normal sheet flow to Florida Bay that came out of Lake Okeechobee one fine day when it was a natural lake, it was about an eighth or a seventh or sixth of what it used to be. So the bay would get super saline and that's an estuary. That seagrass and all the animals there depend on a degree of fresh water to make right. it brackish during the wet season, normal times. So the disruption of the water flow, Jeff, was what caused that to start happening. And it cascaded. It lasted for like 10 years. And I was, I guided the last few years when that was happening. It got so bad that, you know, you go down there and you get in a, on a flat out front of Flamingo Marino you, in, in a foot and a half water, you didn't see the grass. You couldn't see fish. It was so opaque, pea green that you would but there would still be some there and they'd tail if they didn't right. tail you didn't see them wow but that's how bad it got and after a while it really hurt and i think all the sponges in in the bay out there died in mass and the lobster industry out there tanked because all the lobsters died all the habitat out there died so they got really incredibly bad and, and really even since then at the florida bay is still green it still has that algae look all the time it doesn't it's there mm-hmm. all the time. The only thing that's really helped the bay in the last five years is lots of rainfall, Hurricane Irma. Those kind of situations actually put so much freshwater influx in Florida Bay, it started healing itself. And right now the fishing is excellent. They've had great numbers of snook that spawn back in the, the creeks that feed Florida Bay, mm-hmm. Shark River. And they all come around the Cape and they fill into the flats and live there and grow up there. Um, it wasn't nothing man did. There was nothing that they corrected. It's, you can't credit 
the Army Corps or the South Florida Bioinformatics District or anybody else for the improvement of Florida Bay. Florida Bay is lucky that we've had a lot of rain, a couple of storms that brought a lot of rain. Irma was a big good shot in the arm for the bay. Right. But we don't, you can't count on that. I remember. Forever. The, I remember, we'll put it this way. This was the extent of that what I knew when it was happening because I was a young teenager at the time. But we would go to, uh, we, my dad used to keep his sport fish in Long Key. Yep. So, so, you know, we'd drive. And, Long uh, Key. Yeah. Yep. We'd drive and... Um, on the drive, I, I would always look over to the mangroves and stuff, looking towards Flamingo. And I would just, you know, in bewilderment, yeah. wonder what was out there. And that, and then we noticed it start to stink badly. And then it turned brown. What year was this? This like early 80s. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And we, because of the smell and because you, what you could see, you knew something happened. But there was nobody to explain, you know, about the water flow coming out of the yeah. Everglades or whatever. It's hydrogen sulfide, which you smelled. Right. Yeah. And it was, and it was nasty, yeah. you know, and, and we knew it was happening, but we didn't know what was happening. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then um, for you to be at an age to live through it and to watch it, yeah. what was going through your mind at the time? Um, by that time, I had a pretty good idea that it was, it was uh, basically a failure, human failure. Um, Hey, listen, I went to my first Everglades meeting when I was a junior in high school. No, a sophomore, 1971, when the, when the powers to be had this great idea. Let's put a giant airport in the middle of the big Cypress, and let's, let's get all the infrastructure. Let's make a second MIA, Miami International Airport, and, and, and we'll have a nice city spring up around it. And, and that got my attention. That got my attention. Some of the real heroes in my mind, Nat Reed, people like that, and Joe Browder, who was a, a, a journalist from the Miami Herald for a long time, environmental uh, Mark, Marty Stoneman Douglas, they all started sounding the alarm. I went to a meeting in Miami about that very thing and saw those people speak. And the Miami Commission was corrupt as hell. I mean, surprise. They were super <laughs> corrupt, and they all they want to do is make money out there. And you know what's really something? That's when Nixon was president. And Dante Fussell, and our governor at the time was Claude Kirk. And Claude Kirk was kind of this figure people thought he was a clown and all this stuff and he was he was definitely a guy who wanted progress and grow 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 but something clicked with him with that and the and the real environmentalist got a hold of claude kirk got his ear and said this is disastrous for and they started realizing how are we going to have the infrastructure they want to put a train out there for cargo and back to miami port of miami we don't have what about the glades this is going to kill that place mm -hmm. and he bought into it and I guess they made some deals behind the scenes and Nathaniel Reed who's no longer with us God bless him um, he got it done and got hold of Richard Nixon and Nixon who was not an outdoorsman trust me he had no he didn't give a damn about the outdoors he had he didn't ever own a fisher on his life or right. go birding or go hiking he didn't do any of that it's Richard Nixon okay but something clicked and he listened to Matt Reed and Richard Nixon killed the jet board stroke of a pen that was over. lucky you know, look back, Dante Fussell and the Miami Commission, they were going to make a, a landia. I don't know how many of your listeners know much about the history of Biscayne Bay, but that also became a second Miami beach from Key Biscayne, where the lighthouse is. Mm -hmm. They wanted to continue a causeway all the way down Elliott Key, all the way down Age of Fish, and connected at North Key Largo, where the road goes to US-1. They wanted to make that hotel road, just like Miami Beach. Perfect. It was lined up at Miami Beach with just another continuation of that. And that came down to the 11th hour because of the work of four or five individuals. They killed that. 
but they wanted to put a port in. They wanted to put a, a, an industry port right there where Turkey Point is. They wanted to do all kind of terrible things to the bay. That would have killed Biscayne Bay. And, and thankfully, three years later, Biscayne Bay became Biscayne National Monument, and now it's Biscayne National Park. Right. So it's off limits. That'll never happen. I mean, I can't say never, but you it s- won't happen, I don't say, think. You say off limits because that's where I fish now, and I, yeah. I show my clients. I go, you see that sign? I go, that's the, the, the beginning of Biscayne National Park. I said, you see where they dredged? Mm-hmm. All the way to the fucking yes. sign. Yes. I mean, right I to the edge of it. Oh, the government cut dredging disaster, and I, I followed that closely with, with Rachel and what was going on. I reported on that. I did a lot of writing on that for Florida Sportsman and others. And actually, Rachel Silverstein, I, I interviewed her and three other water keepers. Two, three years ago, I did, I did some of the uh, Waterman TV show. I wasn't in the fishing part of it. I was in fishing TV with them years ago, Shallow Water Angler. I was a host, and I was out there doing the fishing, going all over the United States. Right. Because we covered shallow water all the way from Maine to Texas. We went to all these great fisheries, Charleston and Savannah, and we went up to Nantucket and all these great places. And we did TV shows out of there. But you know what? We spent three days at our fish. We never saw the damn towns. Right. At night, you have a 13-hour filming day. At night, it's like 10 o'clock. You in. You got to get up at 4 in the morning and do another TV shoot. You're not going out partying on the restaurants in Charleston. You, I wanted to, but you couldn't. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, long and short of it, what I'm getting to is um, all those places. Um, I, I interviewed three water keepers two years ago on Waterman as the, the conservation you know section of the show. And when I got to know them and saw what they did, that's what inspired me to take this position. I credit them for you know what they do. That's got me where I am now doing this. Okay. You know? Yeah. And I came into the job, you know, realizing I could probably do well at this because it's very important to have connections. And I've got a lot of sport fish connections over the years. I've got the industry knowledge. I know people. They know me. Um, I'm trying to rally these folks, these fishing industry <laughs> big wigs, to understand that your, your bread and butter depends on water quality. And if we lose the water quality and habitat, you're not selling rods and reels. Right. Ten years from now. Five years from now. You would think that they would get it before. Some do. Yeah, some do. Good. Well, that's good to know because you would think they would get it before everybody else since that's what puts, you know, bread and butter on their table. I know but it. I know it. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to imagine. The, um, t- all right. So most of my audience knows you as the environmental editor of Florida Sportsman. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the magazines and how that all happened because you went from being... The Tamiami Trail land captain, well, <laughs> going to Delta, and then yeah. you end up being... Well, when I worked for Delta the last few years, I, I wanted to freelance write a little bit, so I shot a few stories off here and there, and, and uh, I never had a story not that wasn't bought, so I never had one refused. That helped encourage me. I sold stories of Florida Sportsman. I did two or three columns, and that's when, that's when Carl Wickstrom, of course, was alive, and mm-hmm. Glenn Law was the editor. And Vic Dunaway had just retired and left the office, and I did work with Vic but not in the office very much. And uh, so I sold a few stories. They liked my fly fishing acumen. They liked my fly fishing knowledge. And they wanted, they wanted to expand in that direction a little bit. So Carl Wilson called me in the office. What happened really was I, I got the job because a good man was killed, uh, basically. Biff Lampton was uh, one of the managing editors at the time. And that's when they were in South Miami. And, and that's when they were putting 320-page magazines. And the smallest magazines were 275 in the, in the summer, and the big ones were 340, big books because it was a lot of advertising money, the economy was soaring. Um, Biff and his son um, tragically were killed on the, tam- on the Chrome Avenue coming home from a turkey hunt in Alabama at 4 in the morning. Yeah. They were killed at Chrome Avenue 
and uh, Kendall drive by a drunk driver. They were almost home. Almost home. And, and Biff's son is alive, and Biff was killed on impact and uh, went to his funeral. It was a horrible thing. I knew Biff very well. Um, and uh, Carl called me like two weeks later and said, hey, you want to come in and talk a little bit? Yeah. So we went in. He said, how much guiding are you doing right now? I said, well, I'm doing like 150 days a year. You know, I'm still working 100 days a year working for Delta. I was burn, burning out there for a while. And he said, uh, you ever think about quitting your guiding if I gave you a job here? And I went, I looked and I said, well, depends. You know, depends on the money, you know. And then the money was okay. And he said, I'd like to give you the, get you the position because we need, you know, Biff's, Biff, is gone, Biff is gone and we, we need another editor. So I just jumped. I said, sure. You kidding me? Work for Carl Wickstrom? Yeah, I did it. Yeah, Went in there. And at the time, we, we devised a new section of the magazine called Florida Fly Fisher. And they dedicated 18 to 20 pages of each issue to just fly fishing. Right. And we designed it. We had a fly fishing feature, a column called Fly Tech, you know, a techie part of fly fishing, whether it be cover, casting, tying a fly. Uh, a column called At Device was a strictly photograph, I, I yeah, At Device, I and I would do all those. I would do all those. And then the last one was, uh, I forget, we had another thing, a Fly Tech extension. But it was a really popular, popular mag, uh, section of the magazine. And, and we actually started getting some fly fishing advertisers. But the real roadblock to getting advertisers and fly fishing companies was, Four sportsmen showed dead fish. Lord sportsmen showed fish with a gaff in it. Mm-hmm. And the fly fishing elitist industry went, oh, we can't show. We're not going to put our ads in your magazine. You got a really? dead fish. You got a dead snook. See, I never put two and two together yeah. that way. I mean, and realize, you know, for me, magazines were everything. I had them all. Me too. I had saltwater. <laughs> I had fly fishing. Sure. I mean, most, a lot of my friends that I made was because of the, the magazines and the boating industry. And it's hard for the young kids to understand now how powerful the media was, the magazines anyway, in the fishing world especially, because people got nothing unless you subscribed to these magazines and kept up with everything. You didn't have YouTube, you didn't have social media, you had none of that. Yeah, you had none of that. It was, it was strictly print. Print journalism was strong. And we didn't have really yeah. local fishing TV shows back then. You had Sosin that you know yeah, did yeah. a little saltwater show and... Mary you know, Sportsman was on for a long time. And George George kind of started doing a show, and but those were shows. Mm-hmm. Like you could only learn so much. So yeah. the magazine was like the Bible. Yeah. Well, you had you had a, those shows. You have to spend a lot of time talking about your sponsor's stuff too. You know the gear, and all that. Um, we we did shows with Florida Sports, so I was frustrated. We had sponsors, and yeah, good. Thank God for your sponsors. We had to use the sponsors' gear. Sometimes it wasn't suited for what you were doing on the water. And it just frustrated the hell out of you because, you know, and I've gone to many shoots where I'm a fly, I'm a fly fisherman. And a lot of times we had to use the spinning gear and you had to use the bait casting gear, whatever they gave you whenever they, they threw your way. And a lot of times it was like, God, if I picked up a fly rod, we get more hits. I had more guides, you would believe, on TV saying, can't you just get, get some fly fishing footage? You know, <laughs> pick up a 10 weight, Mike. You're going to cast just tarp and these big plugs aren't, you know, they throw the plugs. We had a morning one time, Whitewater Bay, with Bob LeMay. You know Bob LeMay? I do know Bob. Bob's doing, been around a long time. God, I haven't talked to him in about eight years, ten years. But we went out and did a shoot back in Whitewater Bay in the spring when the tarpon were back there. And we got into a bunch of laid-up tarpon. And we had to use uh, the sponsors, plugs. Mm-hmm. I think Mirror somebody else, you know, treble hooks. <laughs> and we had to use the spinning gear. And we got two, three in the air on the gear. But you know how you know, tarpon treats a treble hook? filled plug they throw it mm-hmm. and it's hard to keep the hook in so we jumped about four and couldn't land one and after a while they wise up and eat the things at all and bob lemay was so frustrated because he had two fly rods in his in his 
gun under the gunnel. He goes, can't do one on fly. Can we just can we just make it happen? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can we just do one? So, so <laughs> we're not gonna be able to run it on the. We can do it, but we're not gonna be. Like, it's not gonna make the cut. My first experience. Okay. My first experience doing TV with Bill Dance. Okay. Bill Dance. I right. Met Bill Dance a couple times. Yeah. Bill, great dude and everything. I, 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 I can't give enough thanks for him to put me on the show and everything. Sure. Oh man. But that was the first time that I was forced to use the sponsor's gear. Yeah. Poor Bill went 0 for 18 on Tarpon the first day of the show. <laughs> and you talk about, oh, can we do something else? And yeah. you can't. And I was going crazy. And I was young at the time. So, yeah. you know, I was getting pissed. Yeah. 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 And it was it was hard for me to swallow. But, um, but I follow you. I follow you. And the sponsors, um, they drove everything. They did. They drove everything. And that's our thing now today. They don't get sponsors to shows. And uh, I, I don't really have any desire to do TV ever again. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's not like fishing. It really isn't fishing. It's just, as you know. It's TV. When you have to do a retake of a boat going by a dock 16 times to get the right angle, and then you got to go in the dock and talk about the tackle 20 times, and before you know, you haven't fished that much that day. You did all this other stuff. Right. But it's like I, I, had, a, I had a producer named Paul Farnsworth. And if you're listening, Paul, I hate Ohio State Buckeyes. I still do. <laughs> he would, He was... On the clock. He knew how much time he had to do every little segment. And, and we went to Charleston one time, the famous marsh where you got out of the boat and the tides are swing five to six feet in a matter of two hours. You got this hay field at low tide. An hour and a half later, you got a foot and a half of water and redfish tails. If you wait another hour, it's too deep to see them. So you got this little window to present a fly or a plastic, whatever you're throwing. And we went to this one spot and I caught two on a fly. We were able to use fly in that show because we had a little fly fishing sponsor and the Orvis helped us. And I caught a nice redfish, and we caught a second one, and they're tailing everywhere. And Paul goes, okay, it's a wrap. We're going to go do some things on the dock about the lures. And I said, you're kidding me. <laughs> After all this. We're leaving this? <laughs> After waiting three hours for the water to be right? We're leaving? He goes, Mike, this is TV. This is not fishing. That's his famous quote. This isn't fishing. It's fishing TV. And we had to leave and go do a dock shot and then do a running shot with both back and forth by the marina. And I'm looking back like, we just left this great bite. <laughs> and it, I hated it. Welcome to production. I hated that part of it. Oh, I hated that part. Yeah, I hated that part of it a lot. <laughs> right. It's funny. I did a, um, I did a recording just like we, last week with the YouTuber Black Tip Age. Yeah. And he's just astonished by the fact that the fishing world, how let's just say it takes them so long to catch on mm -hmm. and um what was he saying oh he says because the fishing world half of the fishing world's run by a bunch of fishermen yeah yeah <laughs> and i i never i never that's, heard anybody say that before and i was like that's you know it's, it's pretty smart yeah yeah no doubt <laughs> i remember that that's perfect. Us fishermen, we wouldn't have got any productions done if it was left up to us. That's right. Yeah, we're too busy fishing and lose track of what we're supposed to do and, and accomplish out there. Yeah, but that's that was. Some, I, I mean, I look back. I, I don't get me wrong. I look back and I really love the places I went and got a chance to do that. And, you know, we didn't have a we had an instructional show. Our show was and that's good. You know, we we were an extension. They wanted to make the show an extension of the magazine, which is a teaching tool. Mm -hmm. So when you went away from floor sports and TV or shallow water angler, you learned how to tie the right what size hook to use. You knew how to tie the knot. You you knew something about the line on the reel, what's better for a light fly, like whatever. You, you actually went away with some knowledge. Some of the shows, and I enjoy it for their, their ten, entertainment value, but some of the shows don't tell you squat about right. how you can do this. It's more like, look what we can do. Look, right. what, we're, look what we are. Look what we can do. Do you, think that has you anything, do you think that has anything to do with it's almost unrealistic? Well, 
because the fishing is not what it used to be. Like Which, it used to be, you could you sure. could you you'd like to give somebody some friendly advice. Hey, take a crocodile spool, go spoon, go down to the beach when it's windy, and that's what you use. And if you throw it in the surf, you might catch a, a snook. Yeah. It's, the problem is, if you tell somebody that now, he'll do it for five years to catch a snook. Yeah. I At know. least in Fort Lauderdale, it's the way it may work. Well, it's it's the pressure too. You know, I'm going to go back to Florida Bay real quick and just talk about something with fish and dynamics. There was a time you can go to Flamingo and you get a Johnson Silver Minnow. And strangely enough, no one used a silver one, silver minnow, but we used a gold one. So you used the gold Johnson spoon, right? Right. Quarter ounce. Yep. And if you got them, eight ounce sometimes. And the redfish, you could charge the fish with a lure. It didn't matter. They Not like bone fishing. You can't charge a bonefish or tarpon's face with an artificial to blow. But the redfish would just clobber the thing. They would clobber it. Within a few years, they started flashing off that lure because they see so damn many of them, right? We went to black. And bam, it's like the old days again. Now the fish would eat the black spoon. Not so bright. They didn't recognize it. And then that didn't work very well after a while. So we're always, you know, fish get conditioned. Really do. Look at the tarpon fly fishing situation, the keys. Those guys are so, they are so fast to change. They're smart. And they're adjusting to the fish that see a lot of pressure. And, you know, they get into smaller flies, little smaller hooks, lighter shock tip it whatever it takes to get the bite so everything's conditioned so what you're saying about numbers of fish is part of it but it's not just the numbers maybe are are dwindling the fish that are there are pressured they see it all they see everything and and you need like crappy conditions to like hide the fact that that spoon's not real right you need some dirty water maybe to get the bite right i mean right there's a lot of things no there's a lot of things i mean i i get i get like um and, and, and tell me if you feel this way. All right, you know how tarpon are, um, they'll start rolling. Mm-hmm. And a tarpon, you'll see one roll, and then you'll see, as far as you can see, they start rolling. And then you'll talk to the other guides and say, hey, are they rolling right now? And they start rolling all at the same time. Yeah. Do you think there's some sort of communication? Oh, no. Because <laughs> it, it always, like... Like, I, like, no, the fish can't be that smart. There's no way that can happen. But there has to be some sort of communication. Well, look, yeah, well, yeah, look look when you come upon a, a school of something, let's say a school of Bonita or a school of Spanish, uh, not beach, but, or a school of tarpon on the beach, and, and, and you're, you're stealthy, you come in and you get it done, and all of a sudden they hear a boat, and the boat gets too close, the tarpon, quick, they go down. Well, what the hell do you think they think? They know there's danger. Right. It's a predator, right? It's, not, it's like a big bird flying over a shadow, blows a bonefish. You can go on a bonefish flat where they're happy and tailing, but if something comes up there with a motor running or clanks the push pole against the back of the boat and he's within 200 yards of you, the fish you're fishing are going to hear that too. Right. So they know. They, they're conditioned. They're super conditioned. They ha- and and I'll, tell you you, know? I'll tell you an example how they have to know. Because where we fish now between Government Cut and Port Everglades, there's never not a boat running. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. And, yeah, well, and and the highway fi- right, and I'm fishing for I'm fishing for the tarpon almost every single night. Most nights, I never turn my engine off, and people are looking at me like, "Are you crazy? Like, you're not oh, going to turn the engine off?" You. Yeah, I've heard that. And I'm like, no, I'll go five hours and never turn the engine off once. Does anything to do with the fact it's safer because you don't have to worry about starting again? I mean. Well, you know, <laughs> trying to keep the engine. With a cruise going. ship coming down on you, and yeah, you know. there's a lot of reasons. There's yeah. a lot of reasons. That's but why I left my motor running in Government Cut, by the way. But in Government Cut, Port Everglades, in those places like that, <laughs> you can do that. And and I've taken guides from like the West Coast or whatever, you know, out fishing, and they're looking at me like I got three heads. Like, what do you mean you're not turning your engine off? Yeah, and then no. you know we have a great night and never turn the engine off, and they're just floored by it. But what, what I mean is, is there, when when fish 
roll into government cut and they start going north all the way to let's call it palm beach inlet there's pretty much an engine going everywhere everywhere sure at all times and in those areas normal you're not going to necessarily spook the fish like that on the other hand if you go over to goodland and you leave your engine on you won't, the fish won't approach you for miles. That's amazing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, tarpon Conditions. Yeah. Conditioned. They get conditioned, and they have to have some sort of communication. They get changed. They conditioned to change a sound. Sound. Something changes abruptly. It gets their attention. You know, I got a friend that's a master at fishing for bone fishing permit with a trolling motor, a bow mount trolling motor. The key is, and I did a story about it one time, and someone said, you shouldn't have written about that. Now everybody's going to know how to do it better. And I said, Man, come on. Let's teach people how to do things right. But... You leave the trolling motor on the same speed, don't change a thing. Do not turn it off. Right. And you'll get closer than hell to those fish. You'd be amazed how close you can get to bonefish and permit with the trolling motor on low. Turn it off, they go. Right. What's, it's, what's that? It's the change, right. <laughs> now, I, I tell people all the time, because when, uh, when I'm catching my bait, I'll often have the client drive the boat. Yeah. And they'll want to put it out of gear. And I'm like, no, no, just leave it in gear until after I throw the net. And they're looking at me, and it's like, you know, they don't realize that it's... Yeah, it's my best friend in Richard. Richard Kerner's friend. He's a doctor in, my, in Carl Gables, and uh, we fished together for 35 years. And, and he, he, he loves his motor so much, he named her, calls her Martha, you know, from <laughs> Minkota, Martha. And uh, he is a master with it. And he showed me things. I said, wow, I can't believe we're getting this close, getting fly shots on bonefish 30 feet away with the motor running. Because we're both getting older, you know. Right now, I'm waiting for a hip replacement in a few months, <laughs> and I can't get on a pulling platform. It's killing me. Uh, uh, but he's 72 years old, and we know, hey, you know what? Pulling, getting up and down all day and all this shit. And, but the other thing is, I think it's stealthy. You know, I, I think about being up on that pulling platform with really educated fish. You're just showing them you're there. I mean, you're high profile. you got to be more careful approaching fish because you, you're up in your silhouette's way up in the air. Right. And those fish see that. You know, when I started doing this stuff, we pulled from the bow of the boat, level with the boat. And I always thought, if you got good eyes to spot fish, really, I mean, you don't need a pulling platform to see the fish. You can see them well enough. But the pulling platform came about. Bill Curtis invented it. It was cool. Got you a good sight to see way ahead, but I think it kind of kills your chances in some places to be up there that high. There's times it'll hurt you. Yes. Sometimes yes. it'll hurt you. Yeah, exactly. So when I uh, when when I knew I was going to interview you, I reached out to a couple people that knew you. Of course, Cantner being one of them that told me you were the original land captain and really worked that thing hard, and he had he had a lot of good things to say. But I'm friendly with George. Um, George. Uh, with George Gods. Yeah, sure. Right here in town. Yeah, good, good friend. And uh, I asked him, I said, what do I need to know about Connor before I go and, and talk to him? I can imagine what he said. What? <laughs> well, what he said was, he says, he says, he's the most passionate dude I've ever met in the industry. Hmm. And um, we had, a, what, maybe a, a month before we were able to get together to do this recording. Yep. And you've contacted me three times and wanted to tell me about Lake O. Yeah. Is that where your passion is now? Well, it's not just Lake O. It's the Everglades. It's the whole the whole uh, situation room with water crisis. You know, um, I'm, I'm, I've been in Stewart since uh, 2000, and I knew all about the discharges. I, we used to report on it. Matter of fact, Mike Holiday was my point person up here. I'd call Mike and get information about him about this place and the like 1998. This horrific discharge from Lake Okeechobee lasted five months, and it was averaging like three billion, four billion gallons a day through our St. Lucie Lock and Dam out west of where I live here. And we had fish swimming around the river. They had. I wouldn't live here yet. With 
their guts hanging out because of lesions and open sores and, and the water was fresh for seven months and that's before there was really a sign of bacteria blooms and I'll tell you about that in a second. Well, but, let me slow you down. Yeah. Now you were contacting Mike Holiday because he was on the water every day. Yes, he lived here and was on the water. And he knew everything. And he, he, he wrote was your for dog. us. He yeah, was your dog. He was. And that's before he moved up here to the office up here when Mike came on board in the office. But Mike was our, our regional guy here. Okay. He was our point person. And, and Mike was knew all about it. He was really well versed on the politics of it and, and the failure of government and all that. And he was very outspoken about it. But, you know, situation is pretty simple. You know, we've taken, we've, we have a place that since the 1920s, we man came to the Everglades and looked at it like a, 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 a fetid swamp. And it was doing nobody any good financially. They had to make, change it to make it make money for them. Um, so reclamation, reclamation means reclaiming something that's natural, reclaiming it and making it the way you want it. They came, our forefathers came to Florida and they said, all this land, oh, but it's wet. We got to drain it. We got to drain it. And they went out and they saw the lake. People around the lake, the lake was a beautiful natural lake with a southern shore of pond apples and these wonderful forests. And when Lake Okeechobee filled with rain, and it did fill with rain up to 20 feet back then, okay? Mm -hmm. It didn't have a dike or a dam around. It's really a dam is what it is. It's a river of grass with a dam that's killing it. Um, the lake would spill over naturally, and all that sheet flow of water would go to Florida Bay as meant to be, now Shark River Slough. It would come along the east coast, like where we live here, Jeff, but there was a, there's a ridge here that kept the water from Lake O from coming to this area. This was all highlands and pines. Anyway, all this water got conveyed down to Florida Bay. When they came in and started changing Okeechobee, they put a small, well, the first thing happened was, you know, 2,000 people died in that terrible, that hurricane in 1928 that brought the lake over top, you know, didn't have a dike, so it just flowed south and drowned people that were setting up camp to do a little bit of agriculture up south of the lake. Migrant workers died. You can go out to the, the graveyard right now on US 76 and see all the unnamed graves that are there from that horrific time. Well, of course, the government came across and President Hoover said, well, this can't happen again. Let's put, a, let's put some kind of a protection there. If they put an earthen dike around the southern rim of the lake, only the southern rim, to allow for that land to be diked and drained. They dug the canals. They dug the canal to the Clusahatchee. Mm -hmm. They dug the C-44 canal that connects to the, up, you know, the headwaters of our river to St. Lucie. Very convenient place to dump the water and keep the lake lower so lives weren't, weren't uh, people didn't drown again. God forbid another hurricane. And it worked pretty good for a while. Then they decided they wanted to drain more and more land. And the real crux of it came in the 60s, early 60s, when Castro took over Cuba and, and sent everybody out of there and took all the land of all the sugar plantation owners. And, and they all fled to, to the United States for refuge. And we put a big fat embargo on Cuba. Can't, and we still have the embargo. Mm -hmm. Amazingly, and this week's very important to think about that. Look what's happening in Cuba. Right. And so sugar plantations, the sugar folks came up here and they set up shop. It became more than just row crops. It became sugar, more and more sugar. But all that land, you know, I can't think of a worse place in the world to put a farm. Right in the middle of the heart of the Everglades where right. water has to flow. Right. And those but they didn't think that back then. They didn't know what the repercussions of that would be. Right. They were environmentally active conscious people right and the sugar farmers yeah. are almost partners with the government in draining it all yeah so they they got their way and they're just slick they're so slick and sophisticated with the political workings but you know the, the basic thing with sugar is you know it's an obstruction if, if, if we had some of that land 
we are now going through a process, if anybody's out there following this with the Army Corps engineers, you know, the activism and, and us crying out long enough and loud enough the last 20 years, I think it's starting to pay dividends because we wouldn't have the Army Corps in this situation to restructure the plan for the lake if we didn't make a peep. So if, if it wasn't for people screaming, and it's obvious what's happening to the Everglades, what's happened to the estuaries, we're getting this unnatural flow of water from a lake and you know, you know, fresh water to an estuary, I don't care if it's freaking Perrier, it's a pollutant right. because it changes salinity envelope. And salinity balance in estuary is everything for spawning fish, for grass growth, for everything. And when you turn a saltwater brackish estuary to a freshwater body five, six months of the year, mm -hmm. you're killing it. And, and so I, I think when we have discharges to, to either our, our estuary or the Clusatchee or Lake Worth Lagoon, by the way, it's an estuary that's getting pummeled too. They don't get much, much headlines. Um, it happens over and over and over. And every time we have a bit of a dieback, a seagrass or fewer fish spawning, sea trout here are about gone, right. sad to say. It's, it's like a punch drunk boxer that gets knocked down too many times. It just will be one day we can't get up and recover. And this, the resilience of an estuary gets knocked down every time as a, an impact like this. So everybody looks around and says, well, look at all these horrific algal blooms and fish kills and all this stuff. Well, it's all because it's all because of the plan to keep the interior South Lake Okeechobee dry right. for farming. Right. And basically, you'll, you'll hear the other side saying, oh, it's development encroaching on the glades. So what we have right now is a remnant Everglades. It, the footprint of the Everglades is one half of what it used to be before the turn of the century. But development hazards definitely have, we have our impacts. Hey, listen, you know as well, you're, you have a Lauderdale situation, which you were spearheading, and I really give you kudos for it. We're, we're, we're living on our own shit yeah. down there. Yeah. And, we're, and we have the same problem here with septic tanks, and there's a lot of sewage problems with infrastructure all over Lee County, Cape Coral, the Northern IRL. But with the biggest impact to us down here, we have our own problems with, yes, nitrogen and phosphorus. And uh, this county, I don't have time to date this podcast, has been so, has been a champion of doing local water projects that take care of our own backyard. But when you get a big influx of dirty lake of water and sediment, and now, in the last 20 years, when I first moved here, we didn't have cyanobacteria, so-called blue-green algae. Right. It's not really an algae. That's, I wish the media would start calling it cyanobacteria because it's a cyanobacteria with toxins, microcystin. It's a cyanobacteria that photosynthesizes like an algae. Right. So you'll see the big scum layer on top. Later in the day, it might be gone. It'll come back up. It'll down. This is dangerous stuff. And that's what the water now brings us from Lake O. Why? It's because Lake O has so much phosphorus and nitrogen from all the inputs around it. It's become eutrophic. Mm -hmm. The bottom of Lake Okeechobee looks like the bottom of our river. I, have a, I had a power pool in my boat until a few years ago. I don't want it anymore. Um, I put my power pool down in the river and to show my customers stuff like this and bring it back up and that spear looked like tar. Right. And it's just flocculent ooze is the word. We call it black mayonnaise. It's a dead anaerobic substance and muck from dying vegetation and sediment from the lake. Right. And now our bottom of our river looks like that, because just like bottom of Lake O. So I did, when, when you turn a saltwater estuary into a freshwater arm of a lake, what do you expect to happen? Right. You know? Right. I mean... In our, in our system in Fort Lauderdale, now we have the infrastructure that's just been horrendous. Well, it's prehistoric. But, it's but old. Long before the infrastructure... Um, not that it wasn't failing at the time, but long before that is we put that dam out there on uh, Davy Road. Davy, okay. Which 
stop the flow of natural flow of water coming to the new river. So a little tiny like Lake O has done the same thing in Broward County. One day that water system will be 80% fresh. Then we have a month of uh, dry weather and it's 80% salt. Then in one day, it goes back to 80% fresh again. That same algae, that same scum, that yeah, same you've had slime. The there. I've seen we them. have it, right? I mean, it's not the big giant like you have here with the whole lake, but it's a microcosm of it. Sure it's the exact same thing. It's just tiny compared to what you guys are dealing with down here. Well, you know, the cyanobacteria, and there's a lot of other kind of blooms too. The ones in northern Iowa are not cyanobacteria. They are cyanobacteria, but they're not, they're not the one that produces microcystin like the one in the lake. But, you know, those cyanobacteria, those organisms, exist naturally in the water at some level amount just like red tide being a natural thing this red tides before we were before ponce de leon got here okay right but in a normal amount that's fine but what's happened is we're giving it superfood and their blooms are going crazy and they get super dense now you got problems with not just the fact that the blooms block out sunlight that kills the seagrass on and on we know that the cyanobacteria has microcystin which is a hepatoxin which is very dangerous to your liver long dis- long uh, term exposure um we've had dogs die here you know dog died two weeks ago in the c51 canal Did you, i don't know if you heard the news there's a real big media story a woman came in with her husband and had two boxers in the, in, the, in the boat and there was a cyanobacteria bloom in the c51 going toward lake L- lagoon and that was lake o water mm-hmm. that brought that bloom the dogs jumped out of the boat in the side of the yard, and they pulled the boat out in their little, they had their own little ramp in the backyard, and they pulled the boat out, and there's four or five lily pads stuck on the trailer. They fell off as her husband brought the boat up to the driveway. And one of the boxers sat down and just made lunch out of the lily pad, just ate the whole lily pad, chewing it, chewing it. Dog was dead eight hours later. Wow. Because it ingested that microcystin from that bloom which is on the side of their canal and and they they tested parts of the plants and found the microcystin on the plant the dog's liver turned to jelly it bled out Mm. that dog died now she is loud and she is at the meetings and she is showing the evidence we had two dogs die in st lucy two years ago from eating uh small fish that were in the bloom on the side of the river we had a real bad loss summer here so it, it will kill dogs. It's dangerous to your children. It's dangerous to you. And now there's some very good scientists out in Wyoming, the brain chemistry labs, that are starting to make the connection between microcystin and another toxin from cyanobacteria, blue-green algae, called BMAA. And they're pretty convinced that this stuff causes brain tangles, plaque in the brain, which is Alzheimer's and ALS. Um, Parkinson's disease. They think this stuff, they look around the country at clusters in the United States of bad cyanobacteria lakes. There's lakes all over this country that are like green pits right. with this stuff in the summer. They're worse than Lake Erie, for God's sakes. Eight of the last 10 years is so bad they had, to, they had to stop using local water. Like they did in West Palm Beach, they found cyanobacteria in the water supply two weeks ago. All these clusters around the country of ALS, of liver, non-alcoholic liver disease, they're all around lakes, freshwater bodies, or brackish bodies that have these blooms. Right. And they know it aerosolizes. Now they know that this stuff gets in the air, and you can inhale it. And one of the fastest ways to get something in your body is to breathe it in. And I'm, myself, I'm one of 73 people. My wife, Michelle, and I volunteered two years ago down at Florida Sportsman. Harbor Branch came down with the, the stuff to test our urine. 
take blood blood samples, and they did a, like the COVID test, they did a, a swab of our nasal passages. Right. All 72 of us had microcystin in our nasal passages. And of the 72 of us, about 60 of us didn't even spend that much time around the water. They may take one walk downtown at the boardwalk a week. That's they weren't all, all they weren't all watermen. They weren't on the water all the time. I was around the blooms because I chase. I'm, I'm, I'm an algae chaser. I go out and document this shit. I was the one who went out there. Yeah, I was around it way too long. I mean, that explains why I'm half nuts right now. <laughs> but you know, I laugh. But you know, I was exposed to it way too much. And now, you know, over the last 15 years, and and they, the problem with that stuff is it, it can give you rashes, cause respiratory problems right away, which it does. It can hurt your liver, but it takes years before the effects in your brain happen. They, they're pretty convinced of this. So it, that doesn't scare the shit out of you. I don't know what would. This is not just damage to an estuary. This is human health. What scares the shit out of me, you know, what scares the shit out of me is 20, 30 years ago, you wanted to talk about flies and teach people how to tie them and how to catch fish with them. Yeah. And now <laughs> that energy is going to this type of bacteria and allergies and issues like this. Well, look, it's I, totally I, insane. I look at, I look at the place and I see what it was and I, and I see, I think we I think, you know, talk about the fam the famous term tipping point. Now we've gone past the tipping point. So it take a lot of work to get to recover. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm kind of encouraged right now, Jeff, because right now the army Corps and we, I was on a meeting yesterday on zoom meeting. I mean, I go to, it's part of my job is to represent and to go in the meetings and, and, and make my, my statements clear, uh, what we want the Corps to do. And right now we have a good South water follower water management district governor's came in a couple years ago and cleaned house he just he asked them all they showed them all the door the old the old directors on the south florida bombs district why because they were let me tell you there were some lousy lousy board members that had ties with agriculture right. and in the old days the district and the core there was an old operating system for lake okeechobee called lures that was the Lake Okeechobee regulation schedule. It was how they moved the water, when they moved the water, who got priority with the water, who got dumped on. The priority was for the corporate growers. They got guaranteed irrigation and guaranteed drainage because of the mechanisms of getting the water off the fields. They used to back pump the fields into the lake until about 2008. That's when a judge came forward, a federal judge said, you can't back pump this anymore into the Lake Okeechobee because when they back pumped all that water and all the fertilizer, it just added to the muck layer of the lake and the pollution in the lake. So sugar, in this case, you know, the growers grow 92% sugar and the rest is row crops. They always talk about the sweet corn they grow and all that. And good, they're feeding the world with that stuff, but they grow mainly sugar, okay? Right. We know that sugar, okay? It's not food. They finally put them, the judge had a mandate they couldn't back pump anymore. But the problem is the damage is done because phosphorus is a legacy pollutant. It doesn't go away. Right. Phosphorus that went in there 50 years ago in the bottom of the lake is still there. And every time the wind blows, every time the lake gets unsettled, it goes back in the water column. That phosphorus is there for the cyanobacteria to eat and go crazy. Right now, the lake, there's 350 square miles of cyanobacteria on that lake right now. So we spend our lives here looking at the gauges, looking at the gates. Are the gates open? Are the gates closed? Are we going to get it again? We got the discharges here. In 20 years, we got it nine times. Big ones. Mm -hmm. Big ones. And that's ridiculous. We know what it does now. So to the credit of, of the core and the credit of the district, uh, folks, we're going through the series of what's called um, LOSM. LOSM is the new plan. You know, there's so many acronyms with all this Everglades stuff. They actually have a glossary 
of acronyms, what the boards mean. They have so many technical terms that you have to have an acronym glossary, right? Mm -hmm. 304, what's this acronym mean? So anyway, LOSIM is Lake Okeechobee Systems Manual, Operation Manual. It's the new Bible. It's, but they're, they're devising it to figure out how they can balance the equity and, and be more fair to all the stakeholders. And, and a stakeholder in the Everglades is anybody from a guy that grows sugar to a fishing guide, right? We're all stakeholders in this. Right. People love the water. People have real estate in the water. You're a stakeholder. You're all stakeholders. So now they're trying to come up with a plan, and they, they had 127,000 models. The engineers ran 127,000 varieties of what the water could do. If they put this much here, what would happen here? If we do this, what would happen here? They were looking for balance, but we made it very clear early on that we didn't care about balance here in the St. Lucie estuary. We don't get any benefit from the lake. Balance means water when you want it, need it, and none when you don't want it. We don't want any. We don't want a single thing drop of that water because it's an unnatural connection. We don't need any fresh water from the lake. Ironically, this Clusatchee River on the west side is a much bigger watershed. Do you know it well? Have you been to Clusatchee area, Fort Myers? I do know it well. It's mate. a huge waterway compared to this little St. Lucie River is a, is a ribbon compared to that. Right. They need some fresh water during dry season on their upper estuary because it gets too salty. And there are seagrasses up there, which a lot of animals, depend, marine life depends on, dies. So they want some lake of water. We don't want a drop. We never did. I right. mean, the discharges started in this county. The day they connected this thing was like in 1929. They had the locks put out there and they put the water here. They knew about two weeks later what a bad mistake it was. Mm-hmm. And people in Stewart are actually having protests in 1930s when there was 5,000 people living here. They get 200 people downtown Stewart with signs and protesting the Army Corps by connecting the lake to the river. You're not gonna talk about 80 years ago. Wow. Wow. So now, and like I, my comments the other day was basically, I told them, you know, we know the damage. I, I go and comment. I'm not going to teach you what you already know. You guys know more about it than me. Here's what we want. You know, we want it to stop and we deserve it to stop. And so now they're trying to find a way. They've come up with a couple plans, Jeff. A, A, B, B, C, C, D, D. E. It sounds like talking about women's bra sizes, right? So all these, all these little numbers on these things. We found a plan. CC, which does a lot of good for our river, does a lot of good. It cuts the, at the discharge to zero, even in the wet season, unless there was a cataclysmic event like a hurricane, the lake's already at 16, and it could go to 20, and that's fearful. They just finished the work. They're going to finish the work on the Herbert Hoover Dyke, made it much stronger with a curtain wall that goes all around the lake, and they're going to be done in a year. It took 17 years to do this. Right. 2006, the Army Corps found out that it was a it was the most dangerous dam in the world in the country they're supposed to do the job in five years it took them 17 years so right. I'm, I'm sure how big a mercy really it was but now it's built where it's stronger and the chance of it breaching because a, a hurricane comes and puts 20 feet of water on that lake it could come over it could break the dike and god forbid that happens people are gonna die right Clewiston, south bay and all the people there right so now there's a plan, CC, that shows that they can cut the discharges here except in an emergency. And we can live with that. We can live with that. Right. But the problem is by doing that for us, someone else is going to get it in the butt. Right. You know, someone's going to get more. Else. So the Clusatchee River folks are pissed off because the one that benefits us the most doesn't help them much. And I feel bad. We all feel bad for that. You know, we don't want anybody to their taps to run dry. We don't want anybody to have no water supply. We don't especially want the farm fields to dry up and die. No, we, we just want to take care of ours. Right. It, you got to take care of it. You got, you know. Well, to me, 
watching it for so many years. It's, compli it's complicated by design, <laughs> by the way. Right. And you, you, you know who brought that up? And I, I mentioned it all the time. Was uh, the guy Marciano from Wicaduna. He, I had him on my podcast, yeah. right? And he said, you know, the government loves it when we're all divided and are going in different oh, directions. Yeah, I know. And he says, if we ever came together and united, the commercial fishermen, the sport fishermen, the surfers, the kayakers, the bird lovers, the, and we can go on and on and on. If we ever united together. It's, that's the hard part. Um, I'm happy with the advocacy here, but I would say 95% of the advocacy here in activity and, and, the, and, and the voice has been by about 100 people here in this county. Right. The same guard. I see that over and over again. It's okay. Again. It's okay. We'll get it done. Hey, I'll win this for you. I don't care. If you don't say a word, okay. I'm going to win it because I care about it like you care about it. And you're going to win because, if you're going to win because of my efforts, great. I'm happy for you. I'm happy for me. But boy, I wish you would get on board. You know, I look at the fishing community, anglers, and, and you know, I look at the people that come to our Rivers Coalition meetings, which we're a member of, every month, the same faces, and it's usually older people, 55 to 75. Right. We're in you know, the kids, and we're trying to educate the kids. You know, the the 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, up to 40, that are fishermen here, they're too busy fishing, <laughs> I guess. They're fishing harder, I think. I think a lot of them are fishing harder because it's harder to catch fish. Right. And maybe they're not thinking about that. They're thinking, you know. But now we we got a number of people here who are saying, you know, this place is nearly what it was 15 years ago. Wow, where are the fish? Well, you know, where's the grass? But then you get them on board and, and you say, just write a letter. They Pick get up the, the phone. The, ki the kids, the kids you know? if you sit down with them, yes, they'll get they, it. The problem, the problem with the, the kids, the younger generation, it's crazy because I'm 53 now and I... When I first got on YouTube, I was considered the younger. Yeah. And now I'm considered a little bit old. But the kids, they don't no. think it's cool. No. And in order for us to get them aboard, kind of like we did with the fishing and the Lunker Con events and a lot of the crazy shit yeah. that we did over the years, is we made... Made it cool. Made it cool. <laughs> yeah. Captains for Clean Waters is... A little tiny bit made it cool, you know. They got some, they get some good things with their PR, and yep. they kind of made it cool. But until we make it cool, those kids are never going to get in. And in my opinion, the two missing links, because we have the science. Yeah. Oh, we have the science. Yeah, we have more science than we know what to do with. It's and I, well, the problem. And I learned that doing podcasts with all the different scientists. I said, well, I don't need to have these guys anymore. Okay, they're yeah. all it's unanimous. Yeah. But what's the missing link is two things. The all these different foundations and organizations need to unite. Like tomorrow night, I'm going to the Surfrider Foundation. Yeah. I used to be a surfer, never was part of the foundation. They want the same things that we want. So yeah, why, would, sure. why wouldn't I go? Now, if we can simply turn that a little bit more and make it cool for the kids and we can get some momentum with the kids, then I think we're really cooking with fire you know what i mean yeah, we need we need to re replace ourselves with the young next generation coming up i did a, i did a field trip yesterday with everglades law center and uh, they brought 10 middle schoolers to the waterside down at shepherd park um and i'm, I'm in the car on, on on wait on a queue to talk to the army corps I'm, I'm in the queue to speak and they're all outside the parking lot and sure enough you know, mike connor you're coming up next and it's like they're out there looking at me like we're here and they want to do water testing and I had to walk out and say, Hey, I want to make a quick comment to the government about the water. And one kid looked at me and says, go get them. <laughs> you know, so I got back in my truck, you know, and I, and I did my three minute talk and I told the audience of the Korea state, I'm here looking at my truck window at 10 middle schoolers and their parents, and they want to do water testing and they have a lot of questions. And I want to be able to tell them that what I'm doing is not 
in vain. I want to be able to tell them that, yeah, you guys are going to make this right. And that kind of cracked. That was a comment I wanted to get in. Then I told them I was for flat plan CC, blah, blah. Then I went out and we did our water testing. I let the kids do all the testing. And one of the kids... We're walking back, and one of the kids' parents said, well, with all the local projects that are really good, Martin County's got all these great retrofits and all these good baffle boxes on the outfalls. What's it going to mean if they keep on dumping Lake Ome on us? I said, we're going to never get the benefit of it. We're not going to get the benefit of it locally if they keep bombing us with these episodes of Lake O water. But I think, I think you know, the Corps um, has done this for two years. It's a two-year process. Um, it's, it's happening fast. Uh, yesterday was the last chance to have some input, and they're going to go to, I think on August 4th, they're going to come out with a preferred plan on how to operate this lake. And then they're going to have about a four-month period with more public comment to optimize it, make some changes. And then it goes to the process of environmental impact statement. And within a year and a half, it could be inked. It could be the blueprint. And if we get what we want, we're going to see a great improvement here. Right. But you know, I always tell, tell folks here locally, you know, when we don't have Lego discharges, the water is super clear. looks great. But what you see is the damage. So look at the lack of seagrass. So look at the numbers of fish you're not catching. Look at the problems. It makes it clear that we still have problems here, too. We have too much nitrogen in the water locally. We have too much fertilizer. Uh, you know, Martin County's got uh, a fertilizer ban. I think Broward, did they have a summer ban down there on, on yard fertilizer? Yeah, and they passed some, they actually but passed some laws. Voluntary. It's not a real ban. You can buy it all day long here. Right. Well, it's not, it's not a ban. It's like they can get it. There is, yeah. if they enforced it, there's a fine that they can have. If they can catch it, don't it, yeah. But that's all smoke and mirrors. It's all bullshit. I've been watching the government um, locally in the Broward and Dade County. They got a lot of rules and regulations. Sure. But if that, nobody enforces those rules and regulations. Exactly. My dad moved his boat company from Broward County to Charlotte County. What company? So, Salt Shaker Custom Yachts. Oh, really? Way okay. back in the day. Really? He moved his boat company from Broward County to Charlotte County because the county and the EPA and OSHA was giving the boat builders such a hard time about, about yeah. environmental issues. Sure. They all left. So they all left in those same exact areas where the boat builders were mm. are worse now than they've ever been before <laughs> because with what's the there pollution. Now. Right. Yeah. And it's friggin', you know, it's hard to take these people serious. The government has been such a joke. And that kind of brings me like we'll kind of wrap it up with this, but that kind of brings me yeah. to um to where we're at now. I'd like to get excited about DeSantis and some of the things that are going on now. But I don't have a lot of faith in it. Hmm. And I'll tell you why. Before COVID, when we had those huge sewage spills down south, there was some momentum. And people were paying attention. And a whole bunch of shit was supposed to happen. And then COVID comes along, and then it gets dropped like a hot rock. Sure, yeah. And now, where is everybody? You know what I mean? They're all gone. Yeah. The problem's not gone. The problem's worse than it's ever been. The PR companies have have basically covered for the county and the, for the city. The governor's nowhere to be found anymore. The fecal bacteria levels are higher than they've ever been before. There's places where there's absolutely mass exodus of wildlife in Broward County that always had wildlife. Yeah, yeah. And I just don't see it coming from our leaders. I see it coming from guys like you. I see a lot of these foundations, good or bad, and there's a lot of good ones and there's a lot of bad ones. I'm seeing a little bit of momentum there, yep. but I have zero faith in any of these governments and what they say. 
last year because it was election year, we got a lot of lip service. Oh, yeah. And we got yeah. a lot of people yeah. telling us how great some people are. Well, I got news for you. This year, the fecal bacteria levels in the wildlife in Broward County anyway were worse than they were last year. Worse than last year. Even and after it, all the, the emergency disasters you had, they're not reacting to it. Well, they're trying to react to it. Where's the money going? Yeah. They're trying to react to it. But you can't really react to it because it's been so many years of neglect. It's not going to happen overnight. So they'll react to it just a little bit. They'll put up some signs saying, oh, yeah, we're fixing the infrastructure. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, we're fixing the infrastructure. So I'm at the Yacht Club the other night, and a guy at the uh, his birthday party is, hey, Jeff, since they fixed the infrastructure, are you seeing the since wildlife? Since they fixed company? it. <laughs> right. And this is the When did they do that? <laughs> right. This is the communication level <laughs> between the guy that lives on the water yeah. and the government and then what's really happening. And from that standpoint is where I get the most frustrated. One of the frustrating things on social media, when I do a post, something like that, you'll get so many comments. Some of them make it cringe because they just come back with hate or they come back with the well-meaning people, but they have no idea what they're talking about. Cause they're not people. No one has the bandwidth anymore to research something and look at it. Everybody wants things in sound bites. You know, that's like instant gratification. Everybody wants to see it in a box this big. Right. No one wants to read a fishing article anymore, by the way. No one wants to read a whole article. They, they'd rather just see a little caption on a great picture or a little video. That's cool. Sure. But your attention span, this situation we have in Florida needs people to have an attention span and, and not to burn out and, and to stay with it for the long run. There's a lot of activists, people, the water people, friends of mine in the county, and I don't give them any grief, but they're gone. They're gone. They did two years, one year, three years, and they're, and they're hopeless, or they go, I just can't do this anymore. And they don't. And that's okay, you know. Dinosaurs like me, I'm not going to ever stop. Um, and well, I got a new crew and a new, a new, a new generation of people here. And I'm trying to make communicate to people right now. Now's the time to pour on the coals because we're actually getting some, some work done. We're actually seeing the government trying to fix this here. In in, in this case, the Army Corps. I, if you had told me, I told folks on on comment. If you had told me ten years ago, I'd be making this comment to you right now in your mindset. I'd said you're crazy. So I thank you because I think you're coming our way. And I think they are. I think we're going to get something good out of this. Um, I would never have said this five years ago. Well, I, uh, we did a recording. You know, we, so. We did a recording, I don't know, over two years ago. And it was called Rock Bottom. Rock Bottom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the old saying with Rock Bottom is nothing happens until you, hit, you rock. hit Rock Bottom. I thought we were at Rock Bottom in Fort Lauderdale last year when we had sewage up yeah. to our knees in some of the best neighborhoods. Sure. Do you think we're even, you think we're getting to rock bottom? <laughs> I know it's a hard question. Is there a new bottom? <laughs> Is there a new bottom? You keep making new lows, that's for sure. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. You know, I, I do, I do, I do know this is multifaceted and there's some folks out there in this, in this industry, NGOs, non-government organizations that are, 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 are picking the battle they can win and, and are specializing one part of this water crisis. Um, a good friend of mine, Terry Gibson, I worked with Florida Sportsman for years. I was his boss. I love Terry. Yeah, he's American Water Securities Project. This, they're under the radar a little bit. They're not like, I'm, I'm, I go out there and I, I, you know, people call, some of my own family says, you're a media whore. I go, I want to get the reporters. I want to get the TV in front of me. I want, I call them and tell them I got you a story. I got this. I'm above ground. I am very visible. Terry and his, his, 
company, his, his organization, group. they're going after sewage, they're going after septic, they're going after one facet of it, a big part of it, and he's doing it quietly, he's doing it very well, but that's what I'm saying, they are taking one lane of the highway that they can do something with, and they're doing it. Right. My lane's a little different, maybe. My lane right now is Okeechobee. My lane is this thing, the discharge. That's, I'm staying in my lane. Mm-hmm. He's staying in his lane. Everybody in this fight can do something. That's where I see you it. Know? That's where I see uniting. Fishermen ha- can sure have a lane see, in this. See, that's where I see the uniting starting to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but we, know, we, have, we don't have room for denial anymore. You can't go out there and deny it's happening. Right. I mean, there's folks that are out there, and young guys, and I'll, I'll say it right now, a lot of young guys are going, oh, God, you never stop. I've had, I, I've had a close friends in town say, you're talking too much about this. You're killing me. You're killing my business. And I say, I'm not killing your business. The habitat and the, and the pollution is killing your business. Right. And if you don't say something, you're not going to be doing this in three years. Right. So you make a choice. And I've, I've actually had people part ways with me over this. And that's, hey, that's a shame. Yeah, it's... Um, Welfare's in love no more. I mean... Right, right. <laughs> no, that's right. It's, a, you, know? you know, nothing... Um, what do they say? A good deed never goes unpunished. Yeah. I you just know? tell, you know, I tell people, they'll be on Facebook something. Why didn't someone do something? Why doesn't, has anybody talked to them? And I'll say, have you? Right. I'll tell you how to do it. I'll tell you what... I'll actually give you the language. And right. I'll tell you how to send it. Right. Don't just complain on, you know, keyboard warriors, right? Right. One of the <laughs> things one of the things that we want to do with the Coastal Community Network is do media like this so yeah, people understand. Yeah. Sure. That's well, awesome. But then, like you said, is we want to teach people what to do. Exactly. Yeah. You want to talk to your mayor? You want to talk to your city official? It's not hard. You want to talk to right. This is how you do it, this is how you go about it. And then I think if people start realizing that they're not alone in it. Then they'll be empowered and encouraged. Yeah. You know, the problem is you have a mindset of people think, don't think their vote counts. They don't think their voice is going to count, something like this either. And we got to get past that. Um, but, you know, with, with, uh, with COVID, it, I came into this position, and two weeks later, COVID hit. So I'm going, oh, how am I going to keep this thing float? How am I going to raise funds? Because we're 100% fundraising. We, we, we live on funds and donations. You know, we're 98% volunteer, our board. I'm the only paid. Uh, I'm the only paid person in my organization as executive director. No one else is paid. All my all my staff, all the, we're all volunteers. Right. But when COVID hit, I thought, well, now we have this Zoom meeting thing. This is going to get people past the fear of going to a building, getting in front of a microphone, in front of a dais of people in suits and ties. They can make their comments from in their pajamas from home. But it hasn't really happened. The number still has of, of comments from the population still hasn't risen and it's so easy to do that you can do it from your house right get past the fear of speaking in public and that's not every not everybody can do that right see the young you know. the young the young people understand how to use the technology yeah now we just got to get them to have the motivation to use the technology you know it yeah. and um mike thank you that's all i can I say it. well you know i grew up around the industry i've seen a lot of guys come and go when George God said that you had passion, now I understand exactly what he's talking about. And I really appreciate you spending the time and energy. And I hope it's not the last time. But thanks for being on the Real Guy Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for what you do. Run that dog. <laughs> <laughs> Can you get me a dozen? <laughs> That's good. <laughs>